Let's get going. Glad you guys could make it out today on this beautiful spring day. It's nice and what, 40 degrees out, so we love it. We love going from 80 one day to 40 the next, so welcome to the Midwest. We're going to pick up where we left off, and we've been talking about in the, as we kind of get to the final leg of this series, the person of the Holy Spirit. We've got the wrong one up there, guys. It's... Come on now. He's wearing a Nebraska hat. The N stands for knowledge, just so you know. Hey, all right. Oh, yeah, blame the guy who put it in the computer, I suppose, which was me, just so you know. But anyway, we're going to, like, talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, getting an understanding of that, of who He is and what He does and how crucial He was and is today. Because we've kind of got a misunderstanding of it. You, you've either completely ignored the person of the Holy Spirit, or we treat Him as if He's just some sort of force. This power to be reckoned with, in a sense. In John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So the person of the Holy Spirit, he dwells with you and he will be in you. Is that a true statement by Jesus? Did Jesus fulfill what he said he was going to do? Absolutely he did, because what happens at the end of the book of John? He meets with them in this closed room, and he breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. We would probably call that a born-again moment, if you will, for lack of a better term. But the bottom line is this. Jesus said that this was going to happen, and he did it. Now, why that was crucial and why this matters is because the importance in the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, is oftentimes overlooked. From the very beginning in the prophecies about it, obviously men led by the Holy Spirit spoke what the words of God were. And then John the Baptist and his parents were all filled with the Holy Spirit. His conception was done by the Holy Spirit. From the, his baptism on, he's doing miracles underneath the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, his entire ministry was through the power of the Holy Spirit. His death was by the power of the Holy Spirit. His resurrection was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw a few weeks ago, even after he comes, he gives commands to his disciples by the Holy Spirit. So I don't know about you, but if somebody mentions that things are being done by the Holy Spirit that many times, Maybe there's something to that. I'm no expert in a lot of things, but I kind of figured if, if, if the Holy Spirit was important to Jesus, He ought to be important to us. And in John chapter 16, this blows my mind. When you read this, and I want you to think about this. You see, anytime we read Scripture, we, we tend to read it through Western lenses and interpret it based off of what we've experienced. But we've got to go back. Because this was written by Jewish men to Jewish men in the first century. And so they are like have a worldview that they're dealing with. And what they're dealing with in life matters. And in John chapter 16, verse 5, it says, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where you're going, but because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Well, of course. They've been with him for a long time. They're sad. They don't want him to go away. They kind of like having him around. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. To your advantage that I leave. You see, we read that, we glaze through it, we look at it quickly and like, okay, well, that's great. Now, we understand it, but imagine how they felt. This guy, whose their entire life has been centered around for the last three years or so, he says he's going away, but it's to your advantage that I leave. Because if I don't, the Holy Spirit won't come. So how important was the Holy Spirit? He's very important. 
In fact, you can read throughout the entirety of the Bible and you'll see how important it is. If you look at Psalm 103, I read this a few weeks ago, verse 1, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And then he's, from here on, he starts with worship. This is David. And from here on, he gives us these benefits. Who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And you see, he's talking about the benefits of God. And what were they underneath that covenant? Well, it seems to be, and again, you can argue with me on this. He forgives their iniquities. He heals their diseases. He redeems their life from destruction. He crowns them with loving kindness and tender mercy. He satisfies their mouths with good things so that their youth is renewed like the eagle. So if that was true then, how much more true is it now? Are we not under a better covenant based on better promises? Because we don't have a part to play in it. That covenant was predicated on what they did, the obedience to that Mosaic law. But our new covenant is based off what Jesus has done. We are recipients of the gift. And if it was true for David, if David could stand and worship and say, bless the Lord all my soul and forget not his benefits, then how much more can you and I? You see, they had something that we didn't. They had the ability to trust God because they had no options. They watched God move. From the time that they left Egypt, God had just been time and time again supernaturally bringing them through things. And they always went back to this this precursor of, as I brought you by the hand out of Egypt. And yet, they had no problem trusting him. David, no problem trusting God. Right? He stands up against Goliath. You uncircumcised Philistine. How dare you come against the armies of the living God? And he goes against them. How did he know that that was going to happen? How did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go toe-to-toe with Nebuchadnezzar? This dude could have put them under at any point in time. Snap his fingers, they're evaporated off the earth. They never even thought of again. And they said, if you choose to throw us in the furnace, God will save us. And if you choose not to, just understand, we'll never worship your gods. How can they say that so boldly? How can they say God's going to save us? How can they make that claim? Because God is always faithful to his covenants. God is always faithful to his promises. Every single time. So if he told them that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, he sent the Holy Spirit. Now, we began to look at this, these four soils. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But these four soils are important. In Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, he kind of gives this this idea. And as, as I broke this down, you begin to see something. That the seed is thrown. It's the consistent of the same seed. And then there's some that falls by the wayside, and it says that a seed is stolen by Satan, lest they should believe and be saved. So that tells us something. There's a distinction about the first group. They're not saved. Fair enough? And then you got the rocky, where the seed goes, and they receive it with gladness, but tribulation, persecution, temptation comes, and they produce no fruit. And then you got the thorny, where the seed is received with gladness again, but the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, and the pleasures of life creep in and no fruit is brought to maturity but then you get to the good fruit who receive the word with gladness and they bear some 30 some 60 some 100 fold and the purpose of this story is that we're supposed to be bearing fruit and the seed was always the same the seed is the word of god but only one group actually does something with it so who's the sower it's you and i it's you and i And see, what I was showing you something that the Holy Spirit showed me a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, is that 
we as a, a body of believers want to walk into the temple, into the outer courts. In fact, I've got a picture of the temple here. Let me show you this. This is the outer courts. It's called the women's courtyard. You go through the beautiful gate. That's where Peter reached down and lifted up the man. But anyway, in the outer court, there was a lot of things that took place. This is where Jesus flipped tables. This is where Jesus would sometimes teach. You'll see him on Solomon's porch and some other places he's teaching. But he would teach a lot of time here. And basically, everybody that wasn't a Gentile could go in there. And what they would do is they would buy their sacrifice. They were going through the motions. They purchased their sacrifice. And then they take it here to the inner court. And they bring it in and they hand it off to the priest and say, Here, you, go sacrifice this for me. Now, this isn't how it was designed. This is just kind of how it became. And they didn't want to enter in here and they wanted anything to do with that. We're like, we'll just let them deal with that. And then the priest would go and they'd make the sacrifice and go through the ritual and do whatever they had to do. And then some of them would go into the inner court which is where the table of showbread and the altar of incense and, and the uh, menorah was. And then only one priest got to go into the most holy place one time a year where the presence of God was. And as I began to show you, there was something unique about this. It's a, a uniquely American thing, and I'll, I'll say a first world problem, is the fact that we want to stop right here. And we just want to kind of go through the motions and bring that sacrifice, and we want to pass it off. And we want God around, but we don't want God in control. And we don't want to spend time in that presence, because if we're in His presence, then things might begin to change. And if things begin to change, then maybe I won't like that. And maybe it's not as worldly. We'll become more like the rocky soil, more like the thorny soil. You see, we are put on this earth to produce fruit. If we have the same attitude that the apostles had, imagine what would happen. As we read in, in, in the first chapters of the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago, is that we see a transformation take place in Peter. Complete transformation take place in Peter. As he goes forward, he initially denies Jesus. And then, as he moves forward, after Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit came upon them, he's suddenly bold. He stands up in front of all this very likely same type of people who were around 40 days prior when Jesus was killed. What was the boldness? Why did Jesus say it was imperative? It's, it's to your benefit that I leave. So that he could be born again? Do you realize that Jesus leaving this earth had nothing to do with them being born again? Because if we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that we are born again, and we do, according to Ezekiel 36 then why, when Jesus had breathed on them at the end of John, did he tell them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come upon them? Did Jesus forget? Was he confused? He'd been through a lot. I mean, if anybody was going to mess something up at that point, yeah, okay, you're kind of beaten, you were killed, you came back, that's cool and all, but you've had a rough few days. What was happening there? You see, it wasn't just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And in order to produce fruit, you must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what happens. Is this new man stands up in Peter, baptizing the Holy Spirit. He's now full of boldness. He stands up and he says, Men and brethren, these are not drunk as you suppose, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he begins to preach to them. And he goes through a little bit of their history. And he calls them to be saved, and 3,000 men get saved. And then you fast forward, and it's like the next day. I don't know if it was the next day or not. But he's walking into that, that temple. And here's a dude that had been there since his youth, never able to walk, and he's asking for money. He wasn't asking for healing. He's asking for some cash. You ever met those folks? You're walking through. You're trying to get in a movie in the city. Hey, you got any spare change? You got these signs? Sometimes they're funny. My favorite thing is when they're honest, looking for beer. At least they're honest. 
Right? But he walks in there full of the Holy Spirit. And he says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And he reached his hand down there. And he lifted him up. Now that tells you something. Peter expected it to work. Because most of us, in today's sense, would walk around and be like, oh, in Jesus' name. And then we would leave. Because we have no confidence. We don't have an expectation. Peter apparently had an expectation. Because you're going to reach down and pick him up. Something's going to give. Either your faith or that man's legs. And so, as a result of that, he gets some attention. He has to stand before the Sanhedrin. And you'll notice that it says time and again that Peter, full of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Because why did Luke choose to write it that way? Isn't it a given that he's full of the Holy Spirit? Isn't it a given that if, according to Ezekiel 36, that we get this new spirit and his spirit will dwell in us, that we're full of the Holy Spirit once we're born again? Why does he reiterate that time and time again? And there's another part at the end of Acts chapter 4. I want to read this again. Now, this is after they had stood in front of the Sanhedrin and they kind of said, okay, well, obviously a miracle took place and we can't say anything against it, so we're just going to threaten them. Do not preach in that name. Don't teach in that name anymore. And then they let him go. And look what happens as he goes back to his people. Acts chapter 4. They're praying together. Peter and all the disciples that were there with him. Verse 29. Now Lord look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now wait a minute. Weren't they already filled with the Holy Spirit? Maybe those words don't mean what we think they do. Maybe it's talking about something unique and different than what we had oftentimes associated. But look at what he said. Lord, stretch out your hand to heal. With all boldness may we speak your word as you stretch out your hand to heal. And that signs, wonders, and miracles will follow the name of your holy servant Jesus. You know, it doesn't say that we'll follow our teaching. It says follow the name of Jesus. Why was it imperative? Why was it to their benefit? This is part of it. We're going to pick up there, but here's the thing. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago. And the church world that we live in today, when we hear about a miracle, we have a shock and awe moment. I'm going to tell you something, and this usually doesn't go over real well, but I don't know if you know this or not, but a born-again person, the signs, wonders, and miracles isn't for you. It's for the lost those who aren't saved. You see, we want the, the feelings of the Holy Spirit. We want the goosebumps. Besides wonders and miracles, aren't for church services. Now, they can happen, but what were they doing? They're out preaching the gospel. It's getting them in trouble. What got them in trouble? At that point, it wasn't the preaching of the gospel. There's a guy who couldn't stand, who was standing and you got a bunch of people in the Sadducees who don't believe in the supernatural. And what's happened here is we're so shocked when we hear of anything amazing that's taken place. We're like, what do we do with this? What if we begin to normalize the supernatural? Think about that for a minute. 
I think in the church we need a new normal. Anybody sick of that buzzword besides me? But I think in the church we need a new normal. And the reason I say that is because we've gotten away from this. We've gotten away from the power of the Holy Spirit, how He moves and what He does, and the fact that we are equipped with Him for a purpose. And it's not so you can feel goosebumps when you hear a song that you like on a Sunday morning. Imagine, if you will, what would the church look like today had the apostles adopted the mindset of us today? Where would we be? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be anywhere. There's a good chance we'd never heard of Jesus. You see, we needed to normalize the supernatural. We need to get back to the basics because it was so important to Jesus that the power of the Holy Spirit, that's what made him do the miracles. And it was so important to Jesus that the apostles had the exact same gift. There's the gift of the Father. How much more? You and I. You see, we look at these guys and we put them on pedestals, these, uh, these apostles and disciples of, of Jesus, but they were just average guys. They had a benefit that you and I don't. They got three years with Jesus. But he said, it's to your benefit that I go. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to read through a few chapters today as we're going through the book of Acts, because what you don't know is this is called the Acts of the Apostles. And what you could call is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is working through the hands of the Apostles. As we saw in, in chapter 4, verse 29, look at their threats, grant your servant with all boldness, we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. How can they speak their word in all boldness? Because they know he's going to stretch out his hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then he shook the building. That'd be all right. It's so funny to me that people argue about the fact that, oh man, you see somebody shaking underneath the power of God or they fall down. That's not of God. He shook a building. I think he can shake us. So we've got to normalize the supernatural. So let's go through this. Let's see what's happening. Because Peter was a new man. Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. He kept back a part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, who filled his heart? Satan did. Was he born again? We assume. Does that at least imply that Satan can fill somebody's heart even if they're born again? Seems to imply it. Verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now that's interesting. Who did he lie to? Well, it would it seem to men. But who did Peter say he lied to? The Holy Spirit. This doesn't end well for him. Look at verse 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, and so great fear came upon all those who heard these things and the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him and that was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened and Peter answered her and tell me whether you sold the land for so much and she said yes for so much and then Peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord who's being tested it wasn't about them lying to Peter it's about them lying to the Holy Spirit Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, and upon all who heard these things. Now, this is weird. Hopefully this doesn't happen again. 
But if nothing else, just don't lie to the Holy Spirit. We don't have to worry about that, okay? Now, but look what happens next. Verse 12. You see, because of the chapters and verses, this gets separated a lot. But this is just a continuation of thought. As Luke wrote all this stuff down, it was one giant letter. Kind of like when you get a text message from a teenager today with no punctuation or anything like that. It's one of those kind of things. Just a big giant letter. Verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Watch this. So that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. How many of them were healed? All. So was anybody not healed? No. So good thing it was the Lord's will that they were all healed. It's a joke. Try to keep up. But what does it say? Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And there were people that were afraid of them, but they respected them. They didn't want to join them because there were consequences of that, but they respected them. And so because of what they were doing, because of the signs and the wonders, believers were increasingly added to the Lord. And so much so that apparently, by being near enough to Peter, his shadow following upon them, people were being healed. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't working. Now, under a Jewish mindset, they believed that the shadow was part of your person. And even if your shadow would fall on a dead thing, it would make you unclean. So they took this stuff very seriously. That's not what it says, but that is a belief that they held, okay? But this is pretty important. So as these things are taking place, it's going to get attention. And you're probably sitting here thinking, like, yeah, that's great. But that's the apostles. Like, they were with Jesus. They watched him get baptized. They saw the miracles. They heard the words. They were there in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit came upon him. That's them. That's not us. Keep watching. Verse 17. When the high priest rose up, and all those were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducee, and they were all filled with indignation. That means they were angry. And laid their hands on the apostles. That's not in the good sense. And put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now isn't that amazing? They get locked up because what were they doing? Standing in the temple, giving all the words of this life. And an angel lets them out of jail and says, Here, Go back and keep it up. And what would you and I do? If an angel unlocked a prison that we were under persecution for, what would we do? We're gone. Thanks for playing. I'm out. Because we don't want to face it. So what did they do? Let's keep reading. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Oh, they went and did exactly what the angel told them to do. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So the prisoner would be the one whose life would be on the line, the prison guard, excuse me, because if he let them out, the, the doors are locked. So how did they get out? Somebody unlocked it. And somebody locked it behind them. So that is why there was concern. Wondering what the outcome would be. And so somebody comes up and says, look, they're over there in the temple and they're teaching. Verse 26. The captain went to the officers and brought them without violence. And they feared the people lest they should be stoned. So they're afraid of the people because they're getting the attention of those around. 
And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest said to them, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Is that what happened? Yeah, they command him, we're going to let you go. But you cannot speak in this name. You can't teach in this name. You're trying to tell people that it's our fault that your leader was killed. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Now, does Peter realize that his life is in their hands? Yes, he does. Does he care? No, he doesn't. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are his witness to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Who were the witnesses? They were as the apostles. And who else? The Holy Spirit. And what did God do with that? He gives him to those who obey him. Okay? So we see the giving of the Holy Spirit once again, verse 33. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourself that you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew man, away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Man, this is good advice. So there were two Messiah-type figures that had risen up and got some followers, but as soon as they were dead, they scattered. You know why? They didn't come back from the grave. Verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council and watch what they did. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Man. So just for good measure, they just give them a whipping. Command them once again to not speak in the name of Jesus. And most of us would be like, whew, glad we got out of that one. We're still alive. Let's go home. They counted it worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then look at verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What changed with Peter? Why is he suddenly so bold? Well, if you see the Messiah die... You thought he was gone, and you see him come back. I think it gets your attention. And then when the Holy Spirit came upon him, something changed. But that's the apostles. And you get that. Like, they were special because there was 12 of them. They were handpicked by Jesus with the exception of the last one, Matthias. They rolled a few dice. This is our guy. You don't read about him again in the book of Acts, but you actually read about him in church history. He planted numerous, numerous churches. He was very influential in the early church. But I mean, that was these guys. And this is us. We never saw Jesus, but they saw him. So they had something, surely, that we don't. Look at chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hebrews, by the Hellenists, 
because there were widows were ne neglected in the daily distribution. Just so you know, the Hellenists were the Greek ones. They had gone after the Greek culture. So they were Jewish men, but they'd gone after the Greek culture, which was uh, the antithesis of, to the Jewish culture. Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, we seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. So in other words, we need some help. We're looking for seven men. They've got to be of good reputation. And what? Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. But wait a minute. These men would surely be born again. Wouldn't they be full of the Holy Spirit? Why does he make that a precursor? Because maybe we're not talking about the same thing. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over the business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they had their responsibility as apostles. They need to be time praying and they need to be time preaching the word, teaching the word. To the disciples. They're discipling the disciples that are with them. But these guys are going to help out because there were things that needed to get done. And they can't do it all. So everybody's got a role, right? Now look at verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So it says Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Was not Philip? He was born again. Was he not full of the Holy Spirit? Was not Procurus? Nicanor, time, were none of these men full of the Holy Spirit? But wasn't that one of them, the, the, rec, uh, the, the requirements, is that they'd be full of the Holy Spirit? Why is he isolating this? Well, you'll see here shortly. We'll go to the result, verse 7. The word of God spread, and a number of disciples were multiply, uh, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Who are the priests? The Levites. They're the ones serving in that temple. These are the ones that basically entire world and entire job was to be of service as a mediator between Israel and God. And now they're getting convinced. But look at verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Was he one of the apostles? No. He's a disciple of Jesus. What was special about him? Full of faith and power. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Is that unique? It's not unique. He was one of seven chosen. Were there more than seven possibilities? Likely. He did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Sirens, Alexandria, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom of the Spirit by which he spoke. And they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they, all, they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, saying, uh, and they also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, they're making all of this up. But what we know about Stephen, he's full of faith and he's full of power and he was doing great signs and, uh, and miracles. And so he's getting the attention. Now we're going to skip a bunch of this because he goes through a history lesson with the leaders there and kind of lays it out to them how time and again you have rejected the prophets whom God has sent to warn you you kill them and then you kill this Jesus the Messiah you killed him too now look at uh, chapter 7 verse 51 it says you stiff neck and uncircumcised in the heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you 
Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, he said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. How were they doing that? They were resisting the Holy Spirit through the ones whom God had sent. The prophets, the elders, the leaders. You killed them all. Who of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Those were men who were full of the Holy Spirit, led to speak the oracles of God. So can you resist the Holy Spirit by resisting God's workmen? Of course you can. It's not always this goosebump or voice from heaven or shining light. Any of that stuff can take place. But here we have a perfect example of this. Now, how is Stephen so bold? Because I'm pretty sure he knows what's coming. He's full of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit. You notice how it keeps saying that. It seems like Luke is really wanting us to catch something here. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know him as Paul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge him with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, how would you handle that situation? You're being stoned. Would you drop down on your knees, Lord? Do not hold this sin against him. Or be like, Lord, warm up the smiter. Let's get him. See, it wasn't about this world. Now, go to chapter 8, verse 1. Because, again, this is a continuation. It's separated in chapters. But it wouldn't have been in the letter. Now, Saul was consenting of his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So they stayed put. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And once they were committed to prison, do you know what happens? They were killed. That's how it worked. Everybody knew what Saul was up to. Verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They did what? They didn't see enough. They watched him get stoned. They're facing the persecution. Why don't you just go and hide? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. You guys remember Philip? He was one of the seven. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, why did they heed the things that he spoke about? Because they heard and they saw the miracles. But I thought it was only the apostles. Who is Philip? Is Philip an important man? There's no such thing as an unimportant man or woman. Everybody's important. Was there a unique gifting for Philip? Nope. He's just one of the seven picked. To do what? Serve the tables. You notice it wasn't the seven to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And signs and wonders will follow those who believe. That's not what the mandate was. We need you to serve the tables. So why are they doing this? Because that mandate comes from Jesus. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, 
who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, I don't know what he was doing, but whatever he was doing and messing with was getting their attention. And what did they say about him? This man is the great power of God. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So did Simon believe? Does that mean that he was born again? If you believe in him, right? There is no bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand. It's belief in Him. You see this later in Acts 10. As the Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius, Peter didn't do an altar call. He just preached in the Word. And he's like, whoa, what just happened here? Because they're Gentiles. It's not supposed to happen that way. So it seems to me that Luke is making a case as Simon himself was born again and he was baptized by Philip and he was amazed because he kept seeing the miracles and the signs which were done by whom? Philip. The dude picked to serve the tables. Now look what happens in verse 14. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now wait a minute. Do you not receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that you believe? Yes. Then why did Peter and John have to go to them and lay hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit? Because we're not talking about the same thing. For as yet, verse 16, he had fallen upon none of them. The Spirit within, the Spirit upon. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus wasn't confused when he told them to wait, Peter and John were not confused. But Peter, verse 20, said, oh, excuse me, verse 18, And when Simon saw... That through the laying on of the apostles' hand, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, joke's on him. You can do this. Okay? But he was drawn by that. This is that old man kicking back up. Because he made a, a lot of money, I guarantee it, with what he was doing. At these sorceries. Verse 20, But Peter said, Your money perish with you. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. What is the gift of God? The giving of the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus say that the gift will be given? So we're talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. You know, watch what it says here. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Those are strong words. Now, was he born again? Sure seems to imply. There are people that will argue that. Because how could somebody who's been born again be poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity? I got news for you guys. Whether you realize it or not, or we want to admit it or not, you can be born again and still be harboring bitterness and iniquity. You can still have evil spirits attached to you in one way or another. You can be demonized. 
The power of the Holy Spirit can overcome all of that. But you can hold on to anything you want to. Did he seem like a bitter man? Did he see a man like a man bound by iniquity? No. He just followed Philip around. Peter sees something here. This is what we would call a gift of the Spirit. He said, repent of your wickedness and pray that God, for I see that you are poisoned. How did he see that? His eyes are being opened. Verse 24, then Simon answered and said, pray the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So this is a good story, right? We're seeing the Holy Spirit at work. We're seeing how the Holy Spirit is given. We're seeing the power of God. It's, it's getting an entire area's attention, Samaria. You're getting this sorcerer, this grace, or this is the great man of God, and you convert him. Why? Because true power is being demonstrated. But look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which was uh, going down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and he went. Behold, a man, uh, uh, Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge over all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. Now let's stop for a moment. So how does Philip know to go? An angel of the Lord appears to him. So that means it's at least possible, right? Could you be directed by angels? Of course you could be. Could be. He tells him to go down there. He sees an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch, if you don't know, is a servant. He's a castrated male. He's a castrated servant, so he has full attention to where it needs to be. And he's under great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So it's an Egyptian queen. And so he has uh, great authority in her kingdom. But why did he go? He came to Jerusalem to worship. That means in one sense or another, he was what we would call a proselyte Jewish man. In other words, that he had believed in Yahweh and came to Jerusalem to worship. And to worship, what did you do? They just come and sing songs? No, they brought a sacrifice. That is what they did to worship. So we see that he already has a respect for Yahweh underneath the Mosaic Covenant in one sense or another. To what degree, we don't know, but there's something to this. And so he's sitting in his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now you need to understand something. They did not have a phone that had a Bible on it. And they didn't have a nice little neat book. These were scrolls. And the Isaiah scroll is massive. And if you had one, you were super wealthy. Because only the rich had it. So he's carrying this massive scroll. I mean, that thing is huge. And he's reading out of it. This tells you exactly what kind of man that we are dealing with here. So as he sees that, he's reading Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So who told him to go? The Holy Spirit did. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now, how did he hear him? Well, because he's reading out loud. And that was common practice. And Philip ran. He said, you heard him reading the prophet. said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? This is a very Jewish thing. They can read it, but they won't understand it. They need somebody, a rabbi, to explain and espouse upon it. And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. And the place in Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from earth? And so the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture, preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came with some water. And the eunuch said, well, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does that mean when he says that? He's 
born again. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Putting his faith in, belief in, that's the same thing. Verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Now what does that mean? They baptized him. Now understand, he would not, the way we baptize is not how they baptized him. They didn't dip him in. He went down on the water under his own power and as he came up, where's Philip? He's gone. This is the word harpazo. He's raptured away. He's taken away. He goes, verse 40, Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So this is weird. This isn't normal. This is a beam me up Scotty moment. Okay? I was here, and now I'm here. That's at least possible. Okay? Now, quickly, let's go to Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, so we're going back to here, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around from him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now this is amazing. Because who is Saul persecuting? It was the church. The Christians. He had letters from the leaders that he can round any of these followers of the way and take them to prison. Jesus isn't here. What did Jesus say? You're persecuting to me. Who did Ananias lie to? Peter. Who did Peter say he lied to? The Holy Spirit. You see, the body of Christ is Christ. Jesus said, greater things will you do because I go to the Father. Is Jesus our example? Yes, not just in morality. Not just in good works, but also in power and also in mission. As the Father sent me, I send you. Jesus took care of Saul himself. Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, so he trembled and astonished and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, arise and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. So he's on a fast. Whether he wants to be on a fast or not, he's a little shook up nonetheless. Go on to verse 10. Now, when the, uh, when the, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his right hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, as if God didn't know this. He's trying to like, uh, are we talking about the same guy? Are you sure about Have you thought this through? So the difference between him and, and, and say, Abraham is like, well, Lord, if you find 50, will you spare the city? If you find 40, he's like, uh, this is the bad guy. We don't go to the bad guy. We leave the bad guy alone. Why don't you smite the bad guy? Like, just let's get him out of the way. 
Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and into the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as, uh, as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and do what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you something. The moment that Jesus appeared to him, did Saul have any doubts? Or did he believe in Jesus? I think he believed in at that point. So why was Ananias sent to receive sight and to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Was he not filled before? Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now here's the question. Saul obviously has a revelation from the Lord, if you will. A unique one nonetheless. And now we see that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like Peter was, right? Exact same. Now, when Saul was traveling, what was he on mission to do? We're going to stop the church. We're going to stop the followers of the way. I'm going to capture them. I'm going to take them to prison. We're going to have them executed. He had permission from everybody. He has this vision. Obviously, he changed his perspective. Ananias come. He's healed of his blindness. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what do you think Saul did next? Verse 20. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who come, or who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now when it says the Jews, it's talking about unbelieving Jews. You'll see that oftentimes. That's how it's worded. Now look at verse 23. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, the unbelieving Jews. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates uh, day and night to kill him. And the disciples took him by night and led him down to the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So they thought he was probably trying to set them up for something. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so that he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. Now that's an interesting phrase because that's an Old Testament phrase. The coming in and going out. It was a battle phrase where the kings would do it, the uh, soldiers would do it. They would come back in and they would be refreshed and they would be equipped and then they would go out to go on mission for what God had called them to do. So they're using the same type of phraseology to do what? The spreading of the gospel. When we come in, what do we do? We come in together to worship, to be equipped, to get into the Word, spend time in the Spirit together. To do what? Go home and go through our week and watch some TV and do nothing and think about God every now and again. No. Verse 29, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him, and when the brethren found out that they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus, Verse 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Who was multiplied? The churches were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Annas, and he had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Annas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he rose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Why did they turn to the Lord? Because they saw this man who couldn't walk, who can walk. And isn't it interesting? 
okay? This is for you, Mom and Dad. Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Again, it's a joke, tough crowd, okay? But what, what's getting their attention? It's the miracles. Look at verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. The woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, and they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples had heard that Peter was there, and they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while he was with them. So they're, they're, they're remembering her. They're going through some grieving process. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Now, let me ask you this. We read a lot, okay? But what is the key cog here? They were full with the Holy Spirit. They're on mission from God, doing the work, preaching the gospel. Signs, wonders, miracles were happening all around them. And it was getting people's attention. Would you say that the supernatural was being normalized then? Yeah. Is it today? Nope. We hear about something, we're blown away. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We had one happen in our own sight, you know, with Neil surviving his accident. It's a miracle. They didn't think he was going to make it. It's a miracle that he's alive. It's an incredible testimony. And we're all like celebrating. We're all shocked. Like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. And Ethan's like, well, duh, what you think was going to happen? Right? Oh, ye of little faith. You see, that's the problem. We need to normalize the supernatural. We need to recognize that there's a good side of the supernatural and there's a bad side of the supernatural, and they're both in battle. But we also know that we have the greater one that's inside of us. We have the authority that comes from him. And so we can do what we want, just like they. But do you realize, and we're going to continue on with this idea, that the supernatural never stopped. It never ceased. But you don't have to walk in it. You can stop it. You can ignore it. You can just play church. You can bring your offering every week into that outer court and hand it off. Like, I'm good for another week. I'll just go about my life. I'll just do my life. I'll be fine. God, I want your benefits. But you stay over there. I don't want you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord, and that in all things that we can count on you, that every promise that you've made is something that we can hold true to heart. Lord, that these are not just simply stories that once upon a time in a land far, far away, Lord, but this is your power on display. And Lord, I just pray that you are quickening us inside with a boldness, that with all boldness we preach your word as you stretch out your hand to heal, that your word is true and your promises are a guarantee. And Lord, I just thank you that we will walk in the power and the fullness of what you've called us to do. Lord, may we be your hands and feet and glorify you in every aspect of our lives. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you Sunday.